When I decided to open a second location, the Brentwood Country Mart was the only place on earth I wanted to be. I'm Laura Vinrootpool from Capital, and this is what we wore, the Brentwood Country Mart edition. Brian Reimer is the culinary director for Farm Shop, the Brentwood Country Mart's seminal restaurant. From his childhood fishing with his grandfather to time in kitchens around the world, Chef Brian brings all of his talent and experience to the farm shop each day. I'm so glad you're here. Also very grateful that you would take time out of the kitchen to come here and bring us a lot of baked goods and come and talk to us. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, where are you from? Originally Northern California. Okay. Grew up near Monterey. And yeah, dad was in the ag business. I'd like to say he was a farmer. And mom's side was all dairymen and fishermen. Well, and so wait, in the agriculture business, in what way? What did he do? So my dad would just say that he's a farmer. So he did seed production. So huh. he opened a seed company with a Japanese firm he'd worked with in the mid 80s in uh, California. Uh -huh. And then grew to be the fifth largest seed company in the world. Had your grandfather done that? I mean, how Not did he get into it? Not on his side. On my dad's side, he started in the ag business, was a poli-sci major, and then decided that he, well, truth be told, he got a speeding ticket in a 67 <laughs> Corvette for 200 and some odd dollars, and his father wouldn't lend him the money. Right. So he got a job on a, on a farm with a tractor, and then started roguing and dealing with uh, production, and left school to pursue an ag business. How interesting. Yeah. Huh. What's the best lesson you've learned from your dad? What's the biggest lesson you've learned from your dad? Uh, stem from my grandfather. Huh. And and were your grandparents Californians also? Mom's side, born California. Uh -huh. First generation Portuguese huh. from the Azores. And dad's side immigrated to Wisconsin in the 20s and then moved to California in the early 40s. Huh. And my grandfather's saying was, make a child smile every day. <laughs> and it costs nothing to say thank you and please. Um, and tell me about your mom. Oof, the most giving, like amazing person I could ever imagine to be my mother. Aww. Amazingly supportive, uh, eldest of three daughters, grew up on a dairy farm in Northern California in a little town called Ferndale. Wow. And we sold both ranches last year. The dairy was in the family since the early 20s. Wow. And then the ranch in Sacramento, Woodland, uh, was in the family since 63. Did you ever work on the farms? Yeah, all the time. And then fished with my grandfather in the summers. He was a commercial fisherman after he retired. Oh, wow. And what did y'all catch? Salmon, uh, king salmon, sand abs, red snapper off the coast of the Shelter Cove, this black sand beach up north, Dungeness crab, yeah, oh my God. some it, shark every once in a while. How, there's never been a person more born for this role than you, I don't think. Did people cook in your house? I mean, did was your mom a great cook? All the time. Yeah, so my father, father always had mother. people visiting if it was from China or Japan or South America and Guatemala. And so the house was always full of dinner parties. Was there already sort of a California way of cooking and, and way of being? You imagine what else could you get more fresh than your father? I know. Checking out some crops and bringing home, you know, <laughs> a bag of oranges and we'd peel the oranges and throw the peels in the fireplace or tomato fights on the ranch, you know, and you'd walk <laughs> home and like the smell of a warm tomato to this day is still like, just a little unnerving. Were you aware of how unusual that was or how special that was? No, I think it clicks years later. Yeah. You don't really, you're in it, you know, welding with your grandfather in the big barn or fishing at 14 years old with him and a boat dying in the middle of the ocean. And you don't, it doesn't click for years. 
like you don't really appreciate it at the moment, I think. Yeah. And then you reflect on it. And I taught one of the regulars kids a few weeks ago how to butcher a fish. Uh-huh. He's nine. <laughs> and he's just fearless. And now he but he spear fishes in Malibu and cleans the fish and guts the fish and cooks the fish with his folks. And for you, I bet you don't even remember when you learned to do that. It was just I remember cutting salmon with my grandfather probably at like seven or eight years old and throwing the chum over the board over <laughs> over into the water and like the sea the sea uh, sea lions fighting for the chum. Oh my god. Did it already connect for you? I mean, was it already you you knew that I guess the visceral experience of that of I don't know if it's food at that point, but the family was always surrounded by great food. Yeah. There was for a long time I had applied to both service academies, Naval Academy and West Point. Uh. And I'd gotten into West Point, did an interview at uh, Annapolis, and then missed my congressional nomination for a year. So your congressman only has a certain amount of right. because my father didn't serve, so I needed a nomination. Missed mine by like a day. So I had a year to blow. <laughs> and a uh, aunt in Napa said, Well, there's the small cooking school that just opened. Kids go to school with the the instructor and said, why don't you just come hang out in Napa for nine months and see if you like it. And was there any sort of, were you kind of like, oh yeah, obviously I'll do that. Were you kind of like, who wants to cook? I mean, what was, where were I always loved cooking. Like yeah. Julie Child's on the weekend with mom or Dan <laughs> can cook, Graham care. <laughs> you know, oh before it was, I don't know, that special or yeah. that trendy. Yeah. I have a massive collection of antique cookbooks, like all the first edition beards, <sighs> Julia Child's and some back to like the 1860s. Really? Yeah. This is before culinary school? You were you While always had- and during and yeah. even to this day. And so you got to culinary school and was it automatic? Were you kind of like- I think you either love the business or you don't. It's and a I very different sort of a business. It's very militant. Yeah. It's certainly, well, I'll take that back. It was certainly very militant then. So it was very structured. There was always a very hierarchy, especially in the French kitchens. Uh. And I always appreciated that type of discipline. Did you have great mentors in school while you were there? Two really great ones. George Tarasa, the master chef, um, and then a French chef named Hervé Lebiavant, who kind of was with, like the old school French guys in San Francisco. George worked at a restaurant. It was what? called Ernie's. <laughs> Ernie's was in like Hitchcock's Vertigo. <laughs> Coppered, hammered copper tin ceilings, red banquettes, <laughs> and it was known as the most expensive restaurant west of the Mississippi. Huh. French butter and you know, the barrels would come in and they would clarify it. Everything was sterling silver, even the equipment in the kitchen. It was really like the restaurant in California for a long time. Growing up, did y'all go to San Francisco to, to I mean, for special dinners? Not a dinners? lot. I got to travel with my father. Because um, Napa wasn't like Napa then, was it? I no, mean, it wasn't Napa a was tourist like, destination. It was a country town. Like Paso is right now. Right. <laughs> like I remember I lived in St. Helena first and then Yauntville, 98, 97-ish. And Yontville was 3,000 people. It was That's like amazing. four restaurants, a couple of old markets. Bouchon was just opening with Thomas. <laughs> Everything was like an old country store. And, and while you were in culinary school, did you was there a moment where you felt like, I mean, this is 100% for me. I'm, I'm definitely not going to Naval Academy. Like, this is it? Or were you on the fence? Or where were you? So George, the original mentor chef, called a friend of his call named Cal Staminoff in a hotel called the Highlands Inn in Carmel. They went to school together. He called Cal. He's like, I've got someone for you. When can he start? It's like, send him over next Monday. <laughs> so I would live moved back in with my parents as I was commuting to Carmel. And it was like the best place you could imagine. 
And were you the chef? I mean, no, I was a cook. A cook. Right? Yes, yeah, so that was. I was going to ask that. So, what uh, you definitely seem just in your being like a leader. How do you manage that and in going into a kitchen? Because you obviously have your own ideas. You obviously are pretty opinionated. I think. <laughs> I assume, I mean, you seem to be. You seem to know what you want. How do you go into a kitchen which seemed very hierarchical and um, and and not be the leader? It was the first one and the last one out. Right. So whatever it took, that's what I was going to do. And, and is that something you learned from your dad or is that something you learned in school? Definitely from my father. Yeah. I mean, growing up, my father was probably gone 260 days a year. Right. Kind of all over the world. And definitely the work ethic was from he and my grandfather. Yeah. And were you good? I mean, when you got to the restaurant in Carmel, were you, did you I was have- good. It probably didn't click until maybe the first year that I moved back to Napa, worked for Thomas. Keller. I have to hear about that. I mean, was that? Great team, right? It was the opening team at Bouchon, 1998, October. And super structured, really busy, tiny team. And the expectation was everything had to be right. (laughs) Yeah. If it was, people joke about it now, but like the edges of the blue tape had to be cut perfectly even. Right. Everything was labeled, dated, initialed. If it wasn't, it was tossed. Yeah. And so the structure... It's it's kind of it's infectious. Yeah. So if you're around a group of people that everything is executed at that level, then you can't really fall behind. And to go from the Carmel restaurant to that, was that a a big learning curve? I mean, the actual skills that you had um, to have. There were two great mentors that were there, Joshua Schwartz and Jeff Sursiello, who Jeff and I have known each other for you know twenty five years now. The structure was as such that I'm a pretty quick learner. And once you're shown something, if you can execute it well, that's kind of where I've always strived. Yeah. Was there anything that you couldn't get? Not much. <laughs> not much. I mean, not anything you struggled with? I mean, I mean, I would, I don't, it's not. It's like such a language I don't even know. Like, was it hard to? No, I grew up fillet? in a very structured household, uh-huh. and I studied martial arts in my early teens with a man by the name of Jim Mathers, who was a philosophy teacher at Stanford. Mm. And so, and again, I don't think that clicked until probably my late thirties about understanding the philosophy that was taught at an early age and the structure. And then you fast forward, you know, fast forward from the early nineties. And then I moved to China. I'm jumping, but around 2007, Uh I worked for Daniel Ballou in New York and he offered me a position in Beijing. Oh, wait, wait, talk to me about that. Talk Let's, to me about I'll going. step back. Okay. Yeah. So Thomas. Because <laughs> you can't just like yeah, jump I know. over That's that. That's how my mind works, unfortunately. <laughs> and That's an important part. So you moved to New York. So, so from Bouchon. Bouchon. You- Thomas. I had a conversation with Thomas in the garden at the laundry one day. And I said, I think it's time to go. But I'd like to go to France. He said, where were you thinking? I said, I was thinking Paris or Lyon. And so he set up my first stage in August of 2000. Uh-huh. And I moved to Paris to work at a restaurant called Michel Rostand, a two-star yes. in the 17th. Been there. <laughs> and then a bistro that he had at uh, Pont Nuit, near La Défense, uh-huh. for a month. And then Michel set me up at a restaurant called Apichus for Vigato when he was in the 17th. Then the Maurice, after that, I took a month off to go to language school at the Alliance Francaise. Uh-huh. And then Rostand set me up in Lyon the following wow. January. At a two-star called Lyon de Lyon. Was that incredible? Beyond. Beyond, yeah. Like <laughs> to be in the epicenter of what 
French cuisine is yeah. in that city, living in the old side of Lyon, working for the oldest two-star restaurant still in operation the entire time. Tell me about the kitchen compared to, say, Bouchon. Like, I mean, the structure, the the leadership. I mean, what was it like? Let's call it early 2000s. Um, it was more than aggressive. You were up at <laughs> 7 o'clock in the morning, usually at the restaurant by 7.30. Prep for lunch. Everyone would sit down for lunch around 11 o'clock, the entire team. And then you'd finish lunch. The servers would take care of all the the plates, the captains would walk through the kitchen and offer all the, the chefs an espresso, and you would do lunch service. Lunch would wrap around 2.30 or 3. You'd take an hour siesta, come back. At home? Or- no, you'd go to the park and take a nap because mm, yeah. you're probably exhausted right. or stay and work because you were behind, <laughs> and then get back to the kitchen, prep, do dinner again for the staff around 5. Everyone would sit down. The captains would come in, offer everyone an espresso. <laughs> Pretty, you know, they're like dragging, massive dragging amounts you up. of caffeine. Work through dinner service, 9, 30, 10, dinner service wraps. You scrub the entire kitchen down. Normally, you would have to go out to have a drink somewhere. <laughs> yes. And you find yourself home at 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning to wake wow. back up at 7. And you do that six days a week. Unbelievable. When you would have lunch. Are you enjoying lunch? Are you like appreciating the food itself? And are you are – like, do you like food? I love food. <laughs> it was always – those meals in France were always, it was a byproduct of something that was happening, especially right. when you worked at like the gastro or a two or three star restaurant. Yeah. So it might be roasted leg of lamb because you use the chops and the loins for the restaurant and the pastry chef would always make something for dessert and uh. it was very convivial. Yeah. I do speak a little French, but what is a stage? <laughs> so a stage or being a stagiaire would be someone placing you in a restaurant, obviously in the restaurant setting, to get an experience. So if you were there for a month or a period of time, that you would under you would begin to understand what that style of restaurant might be. Where right. Michel Rostang's food was very bourgeois, um, classic dishes from his father's restaurant, Joe Rostang and Antibes. It was a, it was a chicken, wasn't he? Really famous for a chicken for some reason. I feel like I had <laughs> I don't uh, remember. He, okay, sorry. He did this massive pike canal. Oh, really? So whipped fish with a panade, a mixture of bread and milk. Oh my god! Then they would whip it in something called a paco jet, like uh. this really high speed mixer. Uh huh. And then you would make a canal or a yes. football-shaped scoop uh-huh. and bake it in this massive crock with lobster sauce in it. Oh, my God. And it would souffle to the size of a football. Good Lord. And then he was famous for a canado song or a, a pressed duck. So, we, so oh, yes, I know that. Yeah. So in these stages, stages, yes, I mean, are you? is there one specific thing you want to be learning in each one? And is it clear what it is you want to be learning in each one before you do it? Or Not you- always, but sometimes. Uh-huh. More often than not, back then, six of those months that I was in France were unpaid. Right. Um, some places would offer housing. Sure. Some wouldn't, but you ate there. It was kind of you were you were getting trained. You were going to school in France. And then and then when Thomas like said when he set you up, Thomas set you up on the stages, um, he had I guess a bigger idea of like you need to learn how to do this. Or did he? Or just? Or is it just like let's jo- let's drop you down in France because when you leave you will be a different person? I think a little bit of both. Yeah. I think the the idea was is to understand the culture huh. and understand the appreciation for the food. Yes. And to live there is so different than taking a trip there. Yeah, sure. Right, like going to the markets or working those sixteen, seventeen hour days, <laughs> weeks on end. Yeah. But understanding 
as I mentioned before, Rostong being a little bit more like bourgeois kind of elevated country food, mm. where Vigato was, his meat dishes were very feminine. His fish dishes were very masculine. They might have a red wine sauce. And do you know that now looking back or did you know that in the moment? I knew that then. Really? Like people spoke of it or you just People spoke it? of it. Vigato was really hot back then. Rostong was already a well-established two-star. Yeah. Maurice had just reopened that December, uh -huh. and there was a chef by the name of Marc Machan, and his food was very acidic. It was super rich, but there was acidity to everything. Interesting. If it was passion fruit or apples with vanilla, but everything had an acid to cut the richness. Uh -huh. And a lot of the people then thought it was too acidic, but there was a balance to it. And to eat the food, you could understand it. Huh. Okay, so from Leon, where? From Leon to Miami for a short time. <laughs> That's fun. To help, a help a friend open a restaurant on Lincoln. And that was lasted all of three months. <laughs> what, your stint there or the restaurant? Uh, my stint there. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't a huge fan of Miami. I know. Bigger <laughs> fan now. Um, <laughs> then to Boston to work for Michael Schlau and Christopher Myers. Oh, wow. Cool. At a restaurant called Radius. Uh-huh. And beautiful restaurant, an old bank building. Was there for three years. And was Boston more of a lunch? Was that more of a lunch thing or more of a dinner thing? I always think... Uh, heart of the business district, packed lunch. Yeah, that's uh, what I was thinking. Lunch Monday through Friday, dinner Monday through Saturday. First year I came in as a sous chef and I left after two more years as the chef de cuisine. And was that, I guess way. that was clear after my, I mean, to go from Leon to Miami to Boston is a really interesting trajectory. Totally different everything. <laughs> yeah. You know, different, definitely a different culture. Yeah. Love Boston. Just, it was a nice transition coming back from Europe. And I, I wasn't ready to live in New York yet, yeah. but I knew I wanted to go. And so three years later, I was on a phone call with one of our fishermen that we deal with, um, Brown Trading out of Maine. Well, and, and also working in Boston must have been incredible for fish. Oh, the best. Yeah. Definitely the best. Huh. And I was on with Rod Mitchell one day and I said, you know, I'm thinking about going to New York. And he said, where do you want to work? I said, well, I'm thinking Danielle, Jean-George, yeah. Le Bernardin, or at that point, Ducasse was in the Essex Hotel right. in Central Park South. Went to New York, interviewed with them all. And what was that process like? Scary? Best interview in New York was with Marcus Samuelson. Huh. It was the old Aquavit space in the old Rockefeller apartment. And he walked in 10 o'clock in the morning, weekday. Walks in, he, five minutes late. He's, I'm so sorry, I'm late. Um, just have to finish one meeting. Can I get you a coffee and espresso? No, I'm good. Came back. Walks me through the space. Talks about every artist on the wall. Huh. Shows me the kitchen. They were about to move to the new location on 55th between Park and Madison, I think. And he's like, loved the fact that you went and staged in Europe. Know some of those chefs. He's like, I just, he goes, I just love the trajectory you're on. I'd love to have you part of the team. He said, if not, here's my cell phone. And if you have any questions about any of the chefs that you're about to work for wow. in the city, call me. Wow. I'll give you an unbiased opinion. How generous and unusual. Completely off the record. Like, you know. Wow. I'll give you my honest opinion if I think this is the right move for you. Wow. Obviously, I didn't take the job with Marcus. Well, wait. So I want to ask you this too, though. So in those interviews, do they ask you about food or they just ask you who, you know. Everyone has their own kind of style. Uh-huh. And to backstep to Boston. Christopher Myers was one of the proprietors. His interview style was very different. <laughs> and he would sneeze. When he was interviewing someone. What? And if they didn't say something, <gasps> he would end the interview. You're kidding. No. 
Really? He called it a predisposition to serve. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's true though. If, he's like, it's it's something that someone has innately, and if they don't have it, they're not going to work for me. That's so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay, and so you obviously liked your interview with Danielle. So I go to the sky box. <laughs> there was a there's a box above the kitchen called the sky box, and Danielle calls me into the office, maybe a Friday night, six o'clock, and we chat, and. Short of the long, he said, basically, Rod told me that I can't let you leave without offering you a job tonight. <laughs> and I said, well, that's very nice. And Rod had kind of coached me through it. He said, just tell him that you have an offer from John George and an <laughs> offer, offer from Eric Repair at La Bernadette. Right. And he said, I promise you he'll, he'll offer you a job on the spot. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and But let me ask you something. At that point, like, what did you have? at that point that they were interested in? I mean, I know you had all this experience, but what do you think that you brought, you would have brought to them? Or what, what was it about you um, that you had that other people didn't? Um, I think an appreciation for great food. Yeah. A fairly well-rounded experience at all of 24 years old. <laughs> oh my God, you were 24 years old? I was the young, I'm still, I was the youngest, <laughs> Wait a minute. youngest executive sous chef at Restaurant Danielle today. Unbelievable. And... Was in that role for three years and worked for Danielle for 10 years. Wow. Okay, wait, one more thing. In that, so you do the talking interview. Did they then watch you cook or do they watch you in the kitchen at all or watch your, I mean, it's just a feeling they get that you're a leader. Danielle Um, reads people amazingly well. And he always wanted a balance of French and American or foreign and American Mm -hmm. so that the style balanced itself. Like there wasn't too many French guys in the kitchen. Right. Or there wasn't too many Americans. So that there was a, a small conflict, but that that conflict balanced itself, huh. if that makes sense. So the clientele there must have been pretty interesting. And in the, I mean, a different reason, not reason for cooking, but your access is to the best produce and products in the in the country. And then your and your clientele is from everybody, everywhere in the world, the best. And the best it was clients. amazing how many regulars there would be. Amazing. And every... You know, everyone had your night. Like you were there every Tuesday. And uh-huh. Mrs. Mon, that was this old Hungarian <laughs> fabric designer, would come in and eat five nights a week. Unbelievable. I went for, I want to say my 30th birthday or something. My husband took me and he forgot his wallet. And, <laughs> and he had to walk back up to the Carlisle to back to the hotel to get the, the wallet. That's a nice walk up the street. It was a, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, but Danielle came down and sat with me for a minute and had, you know, a coffee with me and he was just, couldn't have been more lovely, but I just love that story. My husband forgetting his wallet. <laughs> okay. And so, so you worked for him for 10 years and not, not in New York the entire time you. First three years in New York. Uh-huh. And then I wasn't sure if. At that point, I had reached kind of my cap at Restaurant Danielle. Jean-Francois, the chef, and Eddie, the chef cuisine, weren't going anywhere. And an opportunity came up to do a project downtown in New York, fell through, and then we had just signed, Danielle had just signed for a restaurant in Beijing. Huh. July of 2007, he goes, why don't you fly over to Beijing? Same Check concept out the new spot. as Danielle um, almost, ish? Ish. Okay. It was called Maison Boulud. Flew over in July, and you walk into... And the old American embassy, 100 meters off of the south corner of Tiananmen Square. Wow. 10,000 square feet. Oh, my God. In my opinion, the most beautiful restaurant in the collection for Danielle at that point. Unbelievable. Yeah. And came back to New York. And I think we moved 
November of 07 and to watch this beautiful structure that later to find out had kind of defined construction of buildings in Beijing at that point. Uh And I was able to read a copy of a diary by Edward Neely that was the architect that built the building. Uh And there's parts of of the diary that would talk about a wall being constructed overnight that was two feet in the wrong direction and knocking the wall down and building it the next day. <laughs> we went through the exact same process in the remodel. You'd, you'd want one wall in a kitchen here and they'd put it two feet in the wrong direction and you'd knock the wall down the next day and it just kind of repeated itself. Oh my God. And we opened July of 2008, just before the Olympic Games. Okay. To a staff of, I think there was 45 in the kitchen. And you led the staff? Yeah. And what was that like? Were you petrified? No. I mean, you have those moments where, you know, you're going from doing 25 dinners in a training session to doing meals for, you know, uh, the morning show with Al Roker the next day for (laughs) 400 people and a buyout with Audi and Volkswagen, like all these parties at the same time because it's the Olympics. Yeah, right. Really intense. And then... You know, you get through the first year and you stop having the nightmares of <laughs> things happening wrong. And it was an amazing experience. I stayed for seven years. Did you really? And how, what was it like living in Beijing? Beijing's kind of like the DC of uh-huh, China. Okay. Super, you know, it's it's a little bit quieter. Shanghai is kind of the New York. Mm. You've got the Bund and it's a little bit more of a party where Beijing's a little bit more diplomatic. Uh-huh. And that whole area of Beijing was called the Legation Quarter. So it was the American, the Dutch, the Belgian, the Italians were on the north side, the Japanese were down on this back alley called Dong Xia, and then the French was just east of that, where the Khmer Rouge had been uh, exiled until his, his passing. Wow. And so the history that was there was just amazing. Yeah. And to be able to see the Forbidden City or go to the Great Wall, there's so much history there. Yeah. It's just. It, do you travel a ton? I'd like to. No, I don't you worked a ton. as much, but <laughs> yeah, I would do Hong Kong once a month, or we'd be in Shanghai every couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a really special time. And then moved to Singapore, I think. Then concurrently in 2010, we opened a restaurant in the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. Okay. And so I would split my time every other month, Beijing to Singapore, for the next three and a half fun. years. Singapore is great. Yeah. Right. Singapore completely different than Beijing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Everybody speaks English. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculously clean. Uh-huh. You can't chew. There's, there's, there's no gum allowed on the island. Like <laughs> really? You would, you would get a ticket for chewing gum. Seriously. <laughs> and if you jaywalked, this is an old joke in Singapore, but if you jaywalked, they would take your shoes. What? And you'd have to come to the police station to pick them up. No. Yeah. Okay. And then so how did you get back to California? Um, is there anything in between there? In September of 2013, our business partner at that point, uh, Hong Kong Construction Company, HKC, wanted to raise our rent. And so I remember talking with Danielle on the phone and doubling our rent would have taken our profits, basically. Yeah. So we made the decision late that September to close in December. And a month before we closed, we announced it to the team. And that was that was a hard closing. Was your team international? At or? that point, we were 98%. Chinese local. Oh, wow. We started with an expat team of eight. Huh. GM, two AGMs, Belgian Somme, myself, executive sous chef, American sous chef, eight, and a Canadian pastry chef. So did you know what you wanted to do next? 
eyed the original French post office in Beijing. And it was this beautiful, probably 3,000 square foot uh, building. And I used to walk by it every day on my walk to work. And when we announced the restaurant was closing, I started to pursue the post office. And a neighbor in the building I lived at was friends with some political people. And (laughs) I put up a business plan and he called me one day to a private duck restaurant that we used to go to. And I won't say who it was, but (laughs) it took, he's asked me how much I wanted to pay for rent. I gave him a number. He cut the number in half and told him to give him three months. Hadn't heard from him, made contact, no updates, decided to move back to the States. It's like, okay, it's not the right time. It's time to go. Three weeks after I got back to California, I got the space (laughs) and then I had to turn it down. Wow. And? And I took six months off. Yeah, I was going to say, what'd you do? Took six months off. Danielle asked me to help him do the opening of a brasserie in Vegas. I went reluctantly. Not a big Vegas fan. Yeah. And then took another couple months off. And went home with your parents or? No, picked up an apartment in North Hollywood and Beachwood. Just was relaxing, hanging out. I hadn't taken that much time off in, I don't know, a decade. Yeah. Traveled a little bit and then was up in San Francisco with a friend of mine that we all worked together with Thomas and went to go see Jeffrey in uh, Larkspur at Farm Shop. Catching up. It's like I could really use some help for a couple of months. But sure, I'm not doing anything. I haven't worked in <laughs> six months at that point. And started to help Jeffrey out there. And then wanted to get back to LA because I had the apartment here. Kind of corrected some things that needed fixing in Marin with a very talented chef, Jacob, who left three years ago. And then I recently just brought back. Oh, wow. Amazing. And it's like getting your right hand back. Yeah, when yeah, you yeah. have that team. That's how it is for me too. It's nice. You just know that it's going to be taken care of. Yeah. And I couldn't be happier to have him back on the team. And so Farm Shop from the beginning, was it sort of clear what it could be, should be, or or that it connected for you with your Northern California? The brand roots? spoke to me because it was kind of like how I grew up. Yeah. Right? It's respect for the producers, the farmers, dealing with the farmers. It was just that ethos that spoke to me very, very easily. And when did Brentwood open? Brentwood opened in 2010. Uh, Larkspur opened in 2013. I joined in July of 14. And then we did a project in Tokyo in 2015. Oh, wow. Spent some time in Tokyo that year. How was that? That was a challenging opening. (laughs) Um, Very different than opening Beijing or Singapore. Yeah. There's always this discovery phase when you try to open a restaurant in a new country. And you contact chefs and friends and purveyors that you somehow know around the world. And the challenge is really building a team, like in any country. Yeah. It's how do you build a team that respects what you do and takes pride in what you're trying to offer. And so in Tokyo, it was the same concept, though? It was sort of still California? Kind of a micro version, Uh but not really celebrating as much of California because... We weren't in California, right. but take that but same. Ca- but but Japanese are like crazy. Uh, I don't know. How do you say it? California files. <laughs> Hugely. Yeah. Right? They love that. The California vibe. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like that's what they want. Yeah. So I think that took very easily to the city and using kind of our same philosophy of great local producers. Yeah. So, yes, we'd have olive oils from California or jams from uh California, whatnot. We <laughs> yeah. love uh, we love 
Wheel of Dirt. Yeah, Wheel of Dirt, <laughs> San Francisco. So we had those shipped in or Humble Ceramics, Delphine, that's yeah. one of the ceramicists that we use. She shipped over for us. Commune did the design. Nice. Same mohair, the mural of Farm Boy up on the wall. Yeah. And then you'd use either American beef or great Japanese beef, huh. or we were making fresh pasta or using the same type of style, but using that local ingredient. How long that lasted it? about two years. Did you live there for a good bit of it? No, just a few months here and there. Mm-hmm. We hired an American chef to take over, um, Craig Lakefield, who did an amazing job. Yeah. And there were, there were a lot of good people on that team. And um, it just didn't work out long term. It was actually a clothing brand. He uh, owned about 35 brands. And he always wanted a restaurant. Uh-huh. And we built one. And it lasted about two years. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I love about Farm Shop is um, is the retail component. Do you do that? So we deal with that with uh, the entire team. Uh, Amr Dugum is our market manager. Alberto uh, is our market purchaser. Mm-hmm. And Roberto and Evelyn are kind of the other two with Ken and Danny. So it's it's definitely a team effort. Yeah. Every Thursday, we'll go and do tastings of new samples that we've gotten in. Oh, my God. If it's a gluten-free... <laughs> Plant-based pancake mix from yes, a friend. Yes, we need that in a farmer, you know, a friend's <laughs> farmer out of Malibu. Or, God, what did we taste last week? Three new different types of chocolate. Someone wow. dropped off a new uh, cookware line. I love that. It's really my. It, it may be one of my favorite parts of the whole shop. It's just like a woman came in. Um, Jade is just launching something called Bacon Crack. Oh yeah, it's a vegan-based <laughs> uh, mushroom. <laughs> bacon and she was there on uh, Sunday and it's amazing to like see someone launching a brand and getting to interact with a thousand people walking through on a Sunday or a Saturday. Get high on crack. Or two weeks ago and she's back this Saturday. Um, Merci Maman. It's a vegan plant-based soup company and she's French and she's super outgoing and just to hear that person that's excited about their brand that may be launching or just continuing to grow and be able to interact with you know, our regulars are probably 90% of our guests are regulars. Yeah. You can literally hang out and say hello to everyone that you know. And isn't that the most incredible thing about the Country Mart? Like, it is the most social place. You, I mean, y- your whole day is filled with meeting people and seeing friends. And I mean, it's such an unusual place. I don't I don't know any place like it in the world. It's it's rare to find something like that. Had you been there before? You No, I'm not a SoCal boy. Yeah, yeah right. I grew up in NorCal. So right. I maybe I'd heard of it, but not really yeah. understood what it was. It's something else. Yeah. <laughs> and to hear kind of the old guard that's still there talk about stories of growing up and walking through the fence on Avondale to exactly. go to the Country Mart and get fried chicken at Ready Chick. Or exactly. It's, it's, the nostalgia is pretty amazing. Yeah. Jim's done an incredible job keeping all, you know, preserving that. So the cool thing about the Country Mart, one of many things, is who you get to meet. Yeah. Or who stops by. <laughs> and there was a regular that sat at 201, the first seat of the bar. And would come and we would just shoot the, we would just speak yeah. <laughs> and chat and say, hi, chef, what's going on? How are you? I said, well, how are you, Pat? I'm like, what's going on? He goes, oh, I feel like maybe a pasta bit. Like, we'll whip up a bowl of pasta. And, you know, I'm for years and, it, you know, you don't really know who the, everyone is. Yeah. Until one day Pat goes, what was your uh, favorite pastrami in New York? I'm like, cats for sure. He's like, no, no, <laughs> Carnegie. Like, eh, I'm, I'm a cats guy. I just, <laughs> just saying. I lived in Lower East Side, like uh, uh, cats. He goes, I'll be right back. <laughs> Leaves, comes back. He gives, he gives me a, a, an album 
Frank Sinatra's 50th birthday album. He produced it. Pat Williams, the composer. No way. Had no idea who he was. No idea. Right? Like, just a nice guy <laughs> sits at the bar. He and I became Aww. friends. Like, some of the best conversations with Pat. Wow. And his wife, she would bracket and star when she read. Uh-huh. And a friend of mine does the same thing, who's an author. <laughs> and when Pat passed, I sat four rows back in an auditorium with a 30-piece band oh. next to his wife Aww. at the memorial with yeah. Mancini's wife <laughs> telling a story about how she should have married Pat. <laughs> To an auditorium of, you know, 200 people dying laughing. Oh, and wow. And people like that. Yeah. Or uh, Alan Rosenberg, you know, was in last night, who's married to Marsha. Yeah. And he comes in. I'm like, Alan, what, you need a drink? He goes, oh, I'm just going to see Marsha. I'm like, take a drink with you. <laughs> He's like, I'll just, uh, if you could make me a Vesper. And he sits down and just, it's, it, it's an amazing place. It's an amazing place. You never know. You might know who it is, but you never know how it's going to interact on any given day. So, so what's next for Farm Shop? We are very happily just launched with Trader Joe's. Wow. Uh, our bread line that we launched October 13th of last year in our artisanal bread line. Wow. And the team that's directed by uh, Chad Chancellosi, our director of operations, Brooke Martin, our pastry chef, and Peter, our Austrian baker, as mm-hmm. we call him, worked on this for about six months. We launched mm-hmm. Monday morning, a thousand loaves of bread left to facilitate 18 Trader Joe locations. Wow. So go- so this is exciting. <laughs> and, and nerve-wracking at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. I was up with Peter 4 o'clock in the morning. He started at midnight on Sunday morning. Not at the shop. I mean, you have a different location. We have a, a have bakery a- in Culver City. Yeah, right. And we do pastries, vinoiserie, some of the pastries that we brought today. <laughs> and Peter heads up the bread line, and it's... It's a process to watch a thousand loaves of bread get bagged up. Unbelievable. To ship out to 18 locations. A big learning process, I think, too. Yeah, <laughs> completely. So there's that. Yeah. Jeff and partners, we've all been working on a couple of other things that's a little premature to talk about, but we are looking to do definitely more. Incredible to hear your journey. And, it, and it's so inspiring, but also stressful. <laughs> For me, I'm like, oh my God, just the performing, I mean, just the the work that you've put in to, to build this career is remarkable. It really comes down to the team. It comes down to a team and did because- you, And how long did, did you know that? I, I, I gather you knew that from your dad or watching your dad work or maybe even your granddad. Did you know, because th- I know that with, with my job, I know that. But did how, how far along did you learn that? Was it quick? I think you learn it along the way and you either- you can understand that you, you've gotten it, but until you have to manage a team and you understand how important it is to let them be the star. Yeah. And to, hi- to, to hire people more talented than you. you. Ha- that was my father's thing. Yeah. If you, me too. if you're the smartest person in the room, you suck. You're done. <laughs> right. If, if you're exhausted at the end of your day, then you're not managing. Yeah. Physically. If you're mentally exhausted at the end of the day, then you're managing your team. So interesting. And if you can't empower them, with the ability to make important decisions, you're not going anywhere and you can't grow that way. Of all the places you've worked, I mean, have you found great places, great, 
great team members here? I mean, are there places that you're like, wow, everybody was amazing in that country or that, you know, that city? I think it's all, there. there's always been those that stand out mm-hmm. in anywhere. Restaurant Danielle was very special because of this energy that Danielle had and continues. He's in town on Tuesday. Uh-huh. I'm doing a party with him in Santa Barbara next Tuesday. <laughs> and... His thing was always like, I want it to be a party every night. Like, whatever it takes, this is going to be the best dinner or meal or evening we're going to have. So if it means you have to sit down and have a cup of coffee with someone's husband, husband or someone's wife whose <laughs> husband has to grab his wallet or send out something for a birthday party or send out appetizers or know that this couple just got engaged and you give them a little bit of caviar and a couple glasses of champagne, like... He got that, and the team got that, and to watch that is yeah. is, is phenomenal. And back to your um, Boston experience, I do think that the service part of it and the sort of inclusive, generous warmth, I think, that you have to have in that uh, in that role, because I, I'm sure there are a lot of, I don't know Michelle Rostang, but I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people that don't have that. You know, he has it just in spades. I mean, he's just... Yeah, and you obviously have it too. <laughs> and it's it's just a, saying. it's it's a learned Yeah, yeah. It's learned, but it's taught and it's understood and it's But it's also innate. You're also kind of born with it, I would it, think. It, a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it. Brian, we ask every guest what they wore to the prom. <laughs> oh my god. Uh I can't wait. Blue three button suit. Navy blue or like light blue? Uh, navy blue. No, sorry. Oh God. Tuxedo? Gray. No, no tux. Okay. Right. Gray pinstripe, light baby blue pinstripe, blue shirt, blue tie. Ah, this is a good look. Yeah. Yeah. Still one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. You remember your date? I do remember my day. <laughs> she was memorable. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. But but I love that you remember what you wore. Exactly. That's great. I'll need to see a picture of that. I'll have to find one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll call your parents. Thank you so much, Brian. This my was pleasure. a real treat. Thanks for having me today. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. queencitypodcastnetwork.com.